today we have Caleb Rarig, the author of Last Seen Leaving, Riverdale the Poison Pen, and The Fell of Dark, just to name a few of his amazing books. He writes these incredible mysteries and adventure books, and they're very atmospheric, and I adore them. I've loved them since I was in middle school, so we're very excited to talk with you today. <laughs> Is there anything you want to say before we start? <laughs> Oh my gosh, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. This is so nice. <laughs> oh, okay, so for our first question, when I was first reading Last Scene Leaving, which I think is your first book, I noticed that there were such interesting character dynamics between January and Flynn, who were the two main characters, and because you can tell that they love each other, but it's very nuanced. And the same in White Rabbit with April and Rufus, because April's Rufus's half-sister, and there's some complex emotions there. And I was wondering how you craft these character, dy character dynamics where you can feel the love and they're complex and nuanced, and then also how you incorporate them into your plots, because kind of the driving force in both of those stories is the main character's love for or connection to the other character? Yeah, um, so speaking specifically of Last Scene Leaving, part of the reason why I wrote that story is because <laughs> it's, I'm gonna try to keep this as concise as possible. I tend to talk a lot and I apologize. Um, <laughs> basically, speaking of Last Scene Leaving in particular, I wanted to write a story about about a couple of things, but primarily it was the first time I'd ever decided to write a story about a gay teenager. Um, and that, that had been my, you know, I was, I came to that realization about myself when I was a teenager. And since then, I'd rarely seen a story that I really felt resonated with me, particularly you would have all these stories about gay boys with girlfriends who come out of the closet and the girlfriend kind of politely steps out of the picture and lets him spread his wings and fly. And I had a girlfriend in high school and, and I never felt like these books really captured the dynamic that I experienced because this was a person who was special to me, who was important to me. And that journey towards self-discovery was, it, it was complicated in part by the feelings that I had for this person. So I wanted to write a book where I felt like these two characters shared genuine affection and that it, that it, I wanted that to come through. I wanted it to be very clear that this is somebody who is more than just a casual friend to him. And she's not just his beard. She's somebody that he really cares about, but that they have, there, there are these other issues between them that lead to this separation, that lead to these secrets between them. And it's complicated by the fact that he's keeping this part of himself from her because he's scared of it. And he's scared of what it's going to do to their relationship and what it means to him in the grander sense. So I really wanted to try to capture that. That was the goal for me in writing that book. In terms of with White Rabbit, figuring out the dynamic between April and Rufus, it was sort of like I needed her to be somebody who was, um, that whole side of his family is very antagonistic towards him, but she had to be his connection. She needed to be the, the thing that bridged that gap. I didn't want them to be able to fully trust each other. They're both very defensive. They're both trying to protect themselves for different reasons and, and they're trying to protect different things. But I needed also for there to be some genuine affection. I needed this to be a connection that was, it was plausible that he would want to make these sacrifices on her behalf. So, I, I mean, a lot of what storytelling is, is figuring out um, what 
these characters, what their objectives are, where those objectives coincide and where they kind of butt heads and figuring out how to write around that. Because that's where the excitement is, <laughs> I think. Definitely. And that really shines through. I think what you said about um, January and Flynn and Last Scene Leaving, I agree with you. I've never read a book that has so much nuance with a gay character having a girlfriend. And I'm really glad you wrote it because I feel like it resonated with you and it will probably resonate with all of your readers. So thank you. <laughs> I also wanted to follow up on that question and just ask about the character interactions in specific, because I read Last Scene Leaving and I really felt that the way in which January and Flint interacted, even in more of the memory scenes was super interesting and compelling. And how do you do that? I just, how do you write that? And I wish I knew. <laughs> like, like, I wish I had a, I wish I could tell you that there's like a formula for it, but, but some of it, like some of it really does just come down to, um, you know, the, the, the most simplistic answer is like, I've seen, you know, all these characters in any given scene, each character has a specific objective. And in fact, in last scene leaving there, the most complicated scene for me to write was the one, uh, no spoilers, but there is a scene at, um, at the mansion and it's Flynn and January's mother and stepfather and his campaign manager. And this was a scene with four people who had four very specific different objectives. Each one of them was trying to accomplish something completely different. And they were four big personalities and they each needed to share space in this scene because each one of them was going to supply a piece of information that was vital. I had a bear of a time figuring out how to get all of these characters to put their personalities forward um, in a way that they don't overstep one another, but in sort of a believable interaction. And it really came down to figuring out what their objectives were and how they were attempting to achieve them. And then what that, what, how, you know, what the tensions that that creates and how that, how I try to counterbalance those. So in terms of how to write these interactions, a lot of it is, it comes down to thinking about what the characters are trying to achieve and what they're going to do to, you know, in so far as the, the characters in the scene, their objectives, um, uh, are not the same, what extent that this person will go to in order to either prevent the other person from achieving their goal or to prevent them from getting in the way of achieving their goal. <laughs> Sorry, this is really confusing. Um, no, it's not. I'm following you. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, so, and, and then it sort of comes down to, you know, what you've established about this character. Is this a person who evades? Is this a person who steamrolls? Is this a person who makes a joke out of everything? Is this a person who turns introspective? In White Rabbit, I establish Rufus as being somebody who's very defensive and angry. And his first reaction is is to feel he he looks for where he's being exploited or um, abused or made fun of. And that's he comes into a situation expecting that the other person is going to try to manipulate him or use him. And April comes into a situation trying to see how she can manipulate somebody else to get to her objective. And so in a way, they're kind of perfectly made for each other for some of these interactions, because he's constantly trying to sidestep her and she's constantly trying to sort of outthink his, you know, sort of trying to figure out how she can outmaneuver this and think two steps ahead of him to get to where she wants to go. So 
I, I, those character dynamics are, they're very complex, but they're very fun. But I, I do think that what it boils down to is, is sort of figuring out in any given scene, what the characters are working towards and what steps they're willing to go to in order to achieve those objectives. <laughs> Again, sorry if that was word salad. <laughs> no, it was phenomenal. One of my favorite aspects of your books are the character interactions and the tension. And I, I'm blown away by your response because that sounds a lot, it just sounds so real, like it's in acting too. That's what they say about every scene. And I've never heard an author translate it that way, which is really cool. And with April and Rufus, I, I've read that book, I love that book, but I never noticed that April, I knew she was manipulative, but their dynamic is definitely unique and it's, it's so, in, I don't even know, it's specific to the story in a way that's genius and oh, I, it's incredible. So thank you for offering your insight to us. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> One other thing that I love about your books is that you use intricate words in a way that they aren't often used in. I remember every single page I would have to look up a word and I, I've never really had that experience because I don't have a, an amazing vocabulary but it's in for books especially teen books it's not this intricate and and I feel like a lot of adult books are like that but young adult books this is something very unique and you make your writing immersive and enriching for the reader because you use these specific words that just completely encapsulate everything you're trying to say and I want to know how you cultivated this compelling writing style because I've never read a book like it well thank you you know um the the truth of the matter is when I was a teenager I started uh, I think uh, I, I always sort of read up I, I guess I read when I was a teenager, YA was not nearly as robust a category as it is now. Um, and I started reading YA when I was in middle school. And then in high school, I started swiping paperbacks from my mother. And so I really learned all of my vocabulary from reading adult fiction as a teenager. And I love words and I love language. And I was always so fascinated to find these words I'd never heard before that had such specific meanings, but that were so, um, and they were so perfect because they really captured entire moods. Like they were just so right for certain, certain things. Like, you know, they, it's, it's easy to, you know, that we have a lot of more general terms that, that make some of the more complicated words less necessary. But I always felt like, I was like, these words exist for a reason. Somebody invented this word. And I was like, and it's such a great word. So I always, I learned a lot, you know, through context, through repetition. And then there were a lot of words that I had to look up. I remember learning the word proclivity for the first time. And I had to look that up because I was like, I have no idea what that means. And then when I learned it, I was like, this is actually a really useful word. And I did try to figure out how to use this more often. So I think, I think some of it was I made from very early on, I made a conscious effort to, to learn more obscure words and to try to use them as often as possible. So sometimes they, sometimes they end up in my writing simply because I'm like, this is the perfect place to use this very specific word. And I kind of do hope, like, I like knowing that people look up words when they read them. I like, I like knowing that people are learning words from reading my books. There is a balance, like there is a point at which I can remember when I was revising White Rabbit, there were some areas where I, I used a couple of words and I was like, you know what? This is just ridiculous. I need to take this word out because it's, 
nobody needs to look this word up. <laughs> um, it's like some like obscure art terminology. And I was like, nobody actually needs to know this. So um, there's a balance, but I really do. I do enjoy words. So I love using, I love to use big words sometimes. I just, I think they're pretty. So <laughs> it's just nice. <laughs> They are, and thank you for teaching me new words because your books are the best way to learn new words. They're exciting. I have a list somewhere <laughs> of, of words I would write down and then I would go home and I would look them up. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> Yay. I know for me, I'm always asked, what do you get out of reading? And a lot of times I think it's the vocabulary that my vocabulary over the years, just from reading these books has gotten so much more expansive. And I think from your books, especially the way you use definitions in a whole, it takes it to a whole new level. And I love that. <laughs> and it's well, thank so you. <laughs> I also wanted to talk about the romances in your books because they are very intriguing, especially <laughs> from the fellow of dark, which I have recently been listening to an audible. Oh, great. But I just wanted to know about how you've craft them in the most unexpected places, these romances, yet they're still so original and organic. How do you think that comes about and how do you make that happen in your books? Well, so I have, I have often said, I think romance is the perfect B-plot to a thriller. I, because it's, it is, when you're writing like a thriller, a paranormal fantasy, any of these stories, you've got really truly life and death um, stakes in the A plot and in the B plot romance is one of those things where it's a much more intimate much more personal story but those stakes can also feel like life and death um, and it also gives me a chance I love a slow burn like I love a slow cooked love story and I it gives me a chance to when it comes to creating tension in a story when you're creating suspense a really great way to do it is you tell you tell this high octane, you know, life or death a plot story up to a certain point. And then you you take a cliffhanger and then you step back and you say, now we're gonna tell a little personal story. And you go in and you develop the romance a little bit. And you get that to a cliffhanger point, and then you jump back into the A plot and you pick stuff up where it left off. And you're constantly, you know, hopefully, you know, the objective is you will constantly be leaving readers wanting to know what, wait, what's going on with this other thing? Like, I want to, I want to go back. I want to learn more about that. And so then you fill them in a little bit more on this storyline. And when you get them to a point where like, no, oh, but what happens next? You go back to the other one and it kind of keeps those pages turning. So I think that romance is, it's, it's just a great way to, um, cause it develops the characters. It tells you more about them. I think it gives you it gives you access to them on a very personal and emotional level uh, beyond just sort of like the, the, the fear and the kind of very primal stuff that happens in the A plot, you know, when they're afraid for their lives or they're, you know, trying to protect somebody. Um, in terms of how to do it, I always, I outline all my stories. I have to, in order to keep myself honest. Um, and I, I usually write in a four act structure. And so, not to sound too clinical, but I think about romance in terms of the building blocks of the story. With a romance, you've got to bring your characters together. There's, you've got to show that they actually like being together, that they, that they get happiness out of being together. I always try to find a scene where, um, a scene or scenes where they sort of reveal their vulnerabilities to each other, because I think that's how you 
develop affection for somebody. And that's how the reader develops affection for characters is seeing their vulnerabilities. And um, it's a point of connection for the reader. It's also a place where I, so you mentioned earlier about acting. I, I come from a theater background. That was my education. Um, I was an actor in school. I did some acting professionally. And I had a professor who told me, who said, your vulnerability, like when you show vulnerability to the audience, that's when they fall in love with your character. And I think about that lesson all the time when I'm writing. The reader needs to see the vulnerability of the characters in the story, or they don't, there isn't anything there to, you want the reader to sort of wish they could get in the story and help. And if you have your characters who are, who are just invulnerable, then there's nothing for them to help with. They're just sort of witnesses. And it's the, with a love story, I, I think about that. These characters, they need to see one another's vulnerability to understand one another and to, to want to reach out, to want to be there for that other person. I think that's crucial in a love story. So I think about all these little parts where you have to have all these things and you've got to show attraction. You've got to show that they enjoy being together. You've got to show that scene where they start to really care for each other. And then you can have like the confession and then the, you know, the, the makeouts and the, all that stuff. Um, but I think it's like, I just, I, I love it as, as a staple of the, of the genre. I just, I think it's, I think that it's wonderful. I just, I love, I love love stories. So <laughs> it's for me in, in a lot of ways, it's a no brainer trying to figure out how to work romance into my books one way or the other. I feel like you just showered us with a million amazing writing tips. I, <laughs> I, I'm speechless the way you translate acting into writing as someone who loves acting and writing that spoke to me and also saying you leave the romance on a cliffhanger and then the the plot on the cliffhanger. It's something that I adore about your books, but it's also something so subtle that I never picked up on it. It never feels formulaic. <laughs> you do it so naturally. And I'm, I'm blown away. I'm having an epiphany. I'm going back and thinking oh. about all your books that I've read. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is, this is genius. I feel like you should teach a course on how to write. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, perhaps you know, my my TED talk also. Yes, know. link it to us when you make one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and to tie into that about plot, um, your stories feel fast paced, even if they take place over a longer period of time. You take your time to describe the events, but your books are so heart racing and you have the flashbacks, but even those are still heart racing. So how do you craft rich scenes um, and elevate tensions as your stories progress without feeling rushed and yet still keeping the reader very engaged? Well, you know, um, again, thank you. That's a very flattering question. Um, <laughs> some of that, again, uh, some of that I've answered, I think, because um, when I talk about that, that sort of... Uh, I guess it's sort of like staggered writing is how I, a term I would use to describe it, where you have, you'll have to have you multiple, an A plot, a B plot, maybe a C plot, and kind of moving back and forth between these, these different plots is a great way of keeping the tension high, always keeping readers at a point where they want to know more. You, you always want to leave people wanting to turn the next page, not wanting to put the book down, wanting to find out what happens next. Um, and that is what, that's really what helps keep the pace going. I think YA lends itself towards fast paced writing because um, it, 
what's wonderful about it is that you can dispense with a lot of the formalities that are expected of adult fiction and you can write in a conversational style your narrator is somebody who's not going to be very formal they're gonna you know they're they think in a more casual way they interact in a more casual way and i can really just sort of be like you know this is this person's train of thought and you're you're just in on it so uh, and that tends to move much more quickly than I think in a lot of adult fiction, not all adult fiction, but a lot of it, there are certain expectations with regard to the craft, with how you're supposed to you know, build your sentences and this, that, and the other thing. And I've read some beautiful adult fiction, but that takes much longer to get through because there is all of this formality. And there's less of that in YA. And I think that you can break more rules with YA. And I think I also think that with YA, you can be more um, expansive in terms of genre blending. And I think audiences are more willing to, um, you know, they're, they're more willing to cut you some slack. Uh, I, I think younger readers are still figuring out what it is that they like. Uh, and I really think that, that um, YA is such a wonderful, now, like, like I said, when I was a teenager, there was much less selection in YA. And now there's so much of it. And there is so much that YA is doing that adult fiction doesn't because they're afraid to, because they've done it a different way forever and they don't want to take these chances. YA is taking so many chances and breaking so many barriers. I think it's, you know, I really think that writers of adult fiction could learn something from YA. Um, I'm sorry, that was a diatribe. I got, I got completely off track. <laughs> we love it. We love it so much. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I, in some ways, I don't know what, you know, in some ways, I'll be honest, I don't know what goes into writing a fast-paced story. It just, in some ways, that's just my writing style, and I don't know how entirely how that developed. I know that, um, like I said, when I was a teenager, I started swiping paperbacks from my mom. And I remember I read a Mary Higgins Clark book called All Around the Town. That was the first real contemporary adult fiction that I'd read. It blew me away. I stayed up till five in the morning because I couldn't put that book down. It, and it's, it's a serial killer story. And I was just riveted. I could not stop. And and I so I, I kind of like binged all of Mary Higgins Clark's books. And I read a bunch of other paperbacks from my mom. And I did start to notice this pattern where you would have this, this story that would build up to a certain point. And then just when you were like, oh, it's like the door opens and who's behind it. And then you cut to a different character who's going about their life. And they get to a point where, you know, they pick up the phone and it's, you know, they, it, the, person on the other end says something so shocking they drop the receiver. But what did they say? You don't know, because we go back and we find out who's on the other side of the door. And that was where I learned that lesson about the importance of kind of staggering these storylines of how you can do that and keep the tension building, keep people wanting to see more. That is part of what pacing is. So there's all of that. That's <laughs> that makes cool. sense. It definitely does. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'm glad you love writing young adults so much. I feel like young adult readers can sometimes get people look down on what they read because it's not as good. But young adult is really such a genre blending mm -hmm. home for all different kinds of writing. And so I'm glad that you love it the way that readers do. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like the people that look down on YA are people that don't read YA. That's true. They're people who, they're people who read who read a YA novel 15 years ago and now judge every single YA novel based on, you know, they, they look at the description on the back of the book and then compare it to Twilight and they say, oh, well, obviously it's X, Y, or Z. You know, and, and it's, I... I don't have time for people like that. That's so boring. You know, get your act together. <laughs> we did our first episode actually on the history of the Y, and that was so fun. And I think a lot of the points that you just discussed really ring true of what we discussed too, like the variants. The variants yeah. is what keeps me going because I know for some of those adult novels, I read the same book in different. <laughs> I don't even know. I just, I read it over and over again because the A plot, B plot thing that you touched upon earlier too is just so, it's really interesting stuff. And I would love <laughs> to just digress and do a whole different conversation about that. But I do yeah. have another question for you. Oh, please. Specifically focused on your newest book, The Fell of Dark, which focuses on Augie Pfeiffer, who I love listening to the audio version of this because the person's voice is just really funny and I recommend if you haven't heard it you should check it out see what they did to your book anyway, <laughs> um so he's this really young guy he's well he's not super young he's a teen but he's still so grounded even though he's in working with vampires and doing all this crazy stuff and I <laughs> curious to know how you keep that balance because for me I was reading about vampires but then it'll switch back to algebra and then vampires and then algebra and it's so fun to read but I feel like <laughs> it could have gone the way where you have one thing that's too much about one thing and too much about algebra and too much about vampire how, how do you keep that balance because I'm very so um you know actually uh, just just like a quick point I I I have heard part of the audiobook and I love it. I ordinarily, when I hear my work read out loud by other people, it's too weird for me. I don't know why, but like hearing my words in somebody else's mouth, it's always very strange. Um, in part because, you know, the story exists in my head in a certain way, but as soon as it's on paper and it's out there, it belongs to, to the reader. And readers are going to put their own spin on it and they're going to read their own nuance into it. And I think that's great, but it is weird hearing the, that spin and that nuance coming from somebody else, like hearing how somebody else hears the lines that I wrote. Cause I'm like, that's kind of how I wrote it. Um, but this is one where just listening to it, I was like, they nailed it. The narrators nailed it. And I'm so, so thrilled. Um, but uh, okay. So to answer your question, um, I am not, I am not a high fantasy writer. I cannot keep track of all of it. It's like all this stuff where you've got to create a whole new universe with new rules, and then you've got to remember them. I think I wrote 50,000 words of The Fell of Dark and realized I, in, in, in the original version, I had um, Augie seeing auras. And at 50,000 words in, I realized I'd forgotten about that at some point, and I'd <laughs> stopped doing it. And so then I was like, I went back, and I'm trying to write it into these different scenes, or I'm like, oh, if he can see this aura, then it makes this whole scene now the trajectory is different. <laughs> and finally, I was like, you know what? I'm just taking this out. Like this, Clearly, it's not organic anymore. It doesn't belong in the story because I forgot about it. And if I could forget about it, then it doesn't belong there. Like It doesn't need to be in the story. So I always have to have my stories at least somewhat grounded in the real world. Like I need the real world rules. Um, 
with the fell of dark it was adding in a little bit of magic i think the, i think it's low fantasy is the term because it's there are fantasy elements but it's still grounded in the real world uh that was the perfect mix for me because i could i could figure out how the real world might interact with a magical system such as this one where at least i don't have to figure out everything so that i still have kind of like I still have my my basic knowledge of how the world works to fall back on to fill in the blanks. Um, I also a huge influence for me in terms of storytelling is Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is exactly this sort of a supernatural, mystical, magical stuff that takes place in the real world. And there is that balance, that interplay between the solid and the grounded and the real and this kind of fantasy and magic and sort of larger than life stuff um and i really kind of for for the fell of dark i what i really wanted to do was i wanted to write a book about who would be the worst person to have to save the planet like who is the worst person to be earth's last chance against the vampire apocalypse and it's this chaotic art nerd from the midwest who does not have his act together and does not know what he's doing with his life or what he wants to do with his life, but suddenly he's got to save the planet. So sort of putting together those elements and bringing him from a place where his life is very ordinary to a place where his life is completely extraordinary was sort of the journey of the book. And it was a lot of fun to do. <laughs> to kind of Sorry. go off. <laughs> <laughs> To kind of go off of that, with all of your narrators, I love all of them because they're brave and they have clear motivations. Like you said, you always figure out what your character wants out of a scene. And they have cool personalities. Their voices are so unique and a lot of the time I'll forget a main character's name after I've read the book and I love the side characters more than the main characters. It's not even a competition. And But with your books, the main characters are perfect versions of narrators because they're so unique and they're so interesting and the story could not have been told without them. It's not that the author needed an observer and so included this main character to kind of document everybody's goings on, but it's the story is just, it needs your narrators so much and your narrators are so fully developed and they don't suffer from main character syndrome and I, I just love them in a way that I don't, I don't feel as much of a connection to other main characters. So I want to know how you find a main character's specific voice and personality and translate it, on, it onto the page in a way that readers absolutely cannot forget that this character is in the book and it could not have been told any other way. Well, um, again, thank you. <laughs> very, very flattering <laughs> question. Um, some of it is, at least thus far, uh, my stories have very much depended on who the narrator is and where they are in their life at the moment. Um, with last scene leaving, I, I, in particular, taking them like one sort of one at a time for last scene leaving, I really needed Flynn to be somebody who comes across as very average. Like he's, he's, he is a, um, he is working very hard to be a very average person. He wants to fit in. He skateboards not because he loves skateboarding, but because his best friend does. And he wants to fit in and he doesn't want to stand out. He wants to, he's trying to kind of pass himself off as something that he's not. And a lot of that, 
comes out in terms of him needing to take very middle of the road <laughs> to, to sort of do whatever is expected of him rather than to break the mold. And over the course of the book, he sort of grows into who he really is and starts taking chances and doing things that aren't safe. Um, with Rufus, I wanted to write, I was actually very, I was inspired by, um, it was another adult fiction series uh, of, it's a, a private detective novels by Sarah Paretsky. It's the V.I. Warshawski series. If you get a chance to read them, you should, they're great. Um, but she's a, V.I. Warshawski is, a, is a, a woman. She's a private detective in Chicago. The book started in the 70s. She's a feminist. She's a badass. And she's very reactionary. Uh, and the whole, I think the point of the character was very much to be a rebuke of the way that women were written in detective fiction at that time. And to show this, to show this character who is tough, who is brave, who is self-sufficient, um, who is angry. And she is she despises being coddled. She hates being talked down to. She hates people who treat her like um, she's fragile just because she's a woman, like she needs help because she's a woman who wants to take care of her because she's a woman. Um, but she's a very angry person and her, her first response to things is to be angry. And then sometimes she's right and sometimes she's wrong. And when she's wrong, she'll later apologize, but she's angry. And I wanted to write a character like that whose first reaction to things was was anger was to be was to sort of come into a situation looking for how he's being taken advantage of and to react angrily to that so so a lot of that book was characterized by this person who has his knives out so to speak um and sort of learns over the course of the book how to trust other people and how to sort of be vulnerable with others and how to how to be okay with being vulnerable around other people with the Fellow of Dark, like I said, I wanted, I needed to have a character who was sort of the worst possible candidate for this adventure, um, who kind of learns to trust himself and learns where his strengths are and learns that he's not, he's not a complete mess. He is kind of a mess, but he's not a complete mess. And he's got this inside of him as well. Uh, so yeah, so all of that is, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg. You know, I, I sort of decide who I want this character to be in relation to the kind of story I want to tell. But then those two things affect each other as the story develops. Who the narrator is shapes how the story unfurls and how the story unfurls shapes what happens to the narrator as it progresses. If that makes sense. <laughs> it does. Thank you. It's all of everything about your books is so sophisticated and genius so everything you're saying 100 percent makes sense to us because we adore your books and your books themselves <laughs> are sophisticated and so are your responses so our our listeners and we will definitely know what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> thank you so i know you just touched upon augie's story a bit and the last response but i have another question relating to him so okay. his he has this really uncanny talent for art that just overtakes him. I think it has something to do with the fact that he's kind of possessed in a way. No spoilers. <laughs> but I want to get into the craft of making a hobby for a character. And if you pick their interests based on their morals or if it just kind of comes naturally to you, why is Augie an artist? Do you have any, how did that come about? So specifically with Augie, some of that is, I was an artsy kid. Um, you know, my, 
art was really sort of my first passion. When I was when I was really little, I what I wanted to be, I wanted to be either an actor, an artist, or an author. And hey, guess what? I kind of grew up to do all three. Um, I was only I only acted professionally for a very short period of time, but I did it. Um, and I guess I, I guess I have not been a professional artist, but I, I do know how to draw a mean stick figure. So I would say that that for me, sort of giving him an artistic pursuit was important in the sense that um, I kind of needed to show that this is a character who he's he's very dreamy. His his inner life is as real as his outer life. Um, and I just also needed him to be a creative character. I needed him to be less um, less practical and more sort of uh, artistic and sort of, well, you know, artistic and dreamy and, and a little scattered a little bit, you know, sort of your, your quintessential artist who's less grounded in the real, but um, very creative. And I think art was sort of, it, 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 it filled the right gap for me um, in terms of, you know, picking well, And also, like I said, with, with Flynn, some of his interests were dictated by what he thinks would be expected and what, what his friends might be into and whatever his friends are into is what he wants to be into also. Cause he wants to fit in. Um, <clears throat> my third novel, death prefers blondes. I have, it's sort of an ensemble cast and in each one of their very specific interests dovetails with their their skill set it's you know it's a heist novel and it's this team of cat burglars and so each one of their personal interests sort of has something to do with the role that they play in the group so in some senses um you know your the hobby does sort of inform who the character is and the character and again you know the character kind of also informs what that hobby is uh, definitely with augie i knew from the start that i wanted him to be in, uh, to be involved in art in part because I had this full idea for these sketches that he would do that would play into the the larger plot, but also um, I just I just wanted an artistic pursuit. So I, I from and because you know since that was big for me, it's always going to be some aspect of these stories. January was involved in the theater club in Last Scene Leaving, and I have a little bit of that. I I have some other something that I'm working on right now is very much in that sort of general realm also. So that's always going to be a big thing for me. Reading your books, I was like, this guy has to have some sort of acting background. And then when you were talking about the motivations, I was thinking that, and I remember seeing in one of your about the author pages in your book, you said you were a reality star or something. And I thought that was so cool. I can't believe we have a dual celebrity, an author, actor on our podcast. <laughs> well, okay. I, I was not a reality star, but I worked in reality TV. I was a producer in reality television for a, for a startlingly long time. I actually worked on The Bachelor for a while. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had I had a job of no particular importance, but I worked on The Bachelor for a while. So, I have I have I have met actual celebrities. I have been on, you know, shoots, and I have I, all all of that stuff. So I I am familiar with that world. <laughs> I'm very glad you are because it lends such an interesting, it really sets your books apart, the way that you can understand characters. I think acting is always something important for any artist, but maybe that's my bias because I like acting. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. One of our last questions is, what is your favorite aspect of a book to write, such as like romance or plot, and which part comes to you the easiest? 
You know, um, I guess I would say, generally speaking, of, of those two options, plot definitely, I think, comes the easiest to me just because I, my, the way that I get into a story is first I think about, I think about that aspect of it, you know, if it's a, if it's a thriller, you know, what's, what's the thread that's holding everything together. Um, in terms of actual building blocks, for me, dialogue is the easiest. And I think that, that some of what that comes from is my background as an actor, where I'm used to entire stories being told just through dialogue, figuring out how to communicate, you know, you, a whole story communicated to the audience without, you know, there's no descriptive text. So everything is done in action and done in dialogue. And you figure out how to how to convey a lot of really important details just, just in that kind of back and forth. And the back and forth itself is an important detail because it tells you a lot about who these characters are and how they, you know, how they react to one another. It, you know, it, it's sort of everything about those relationships. So I would say, you know, it, it's kind of like, not that romance doesn't come easily to me, but romance is sort of a function of the plot, in my opinion. And all of it kind of ends up being functionalized by the dialogue, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Your dialogue is some of the most realistic dialogue I've read of. Sometimes it pulls absolutely no punches. It can be straight to the point or harsh. But every time I read it, it's, it's so realistic. And that definitely, oh. that answer does not surprise me that it comes easiest to you. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I am. Um, it's uh, I. I'm very proud of my dialogue, and I often the way that I approach it is I think to myself, you know, if I were in this person's position, what would I say? You know, how would I react to this? What would be my response to that? And then how would I respond to myself? A lifetime of arguing with myself in my head uh, it comes in handy here. <laughs> Our final question for you is about crafting fantastical novels or novels with fantastical elements, I suppose you would call it. But how do you go about doing research for that? Because I know you said that you had to find that balance for Augie's story, or we talked about that, but how, where do you get your information from? I know also Buffy the Vampire Slayer might have been somewhat of an inspiration, but yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it, I think it sort of depends on the on, on the fantastical element that we are speaking of. Um, but one of the great things about writing vampires is that you know, vampire lore is it, it exists across multiple cultures around the world. There is so much vampire mythology, and uh, you know, and, and and vampires have been written about in popular fiction for over a hundred years. So in a lot of ways, I'm not, I, I, I'm not reinventing the wheel. Um, and that was really nice. I got to come into this saying, I'm going to write a book about vampires. People have read vampire stories. They've consumed vampire media. Um, so what am I bringing to the table? And I sort of got to go back and read about all different kinds of vampire myth and pick and choose and say, I like this and I like that. This isn't convenient for me. This is a little too weird or this is a little too... Um, you know, there's some stuff that there's some stuff that is just vampire stories. You know, they stake to the heart. You know, uh, sunlight is deadly. But then there's other stuff that is that was sort of specifically invented or has become specifically uh, uh, correlated with specific properties like Twilight, like Buffy, like um, True Blood, and some of these other that have popularized 
like popular vampire stories in contemporary media. So I sort of got to pick and choose what I liked and I got to throw a little bit of my own stamp on there. Um, with the magic system, it, my magic system was heavily informed by one created by, uh, there is there a, a pair of Swedish writers named Mats Strandberg and Sarah Bergmark Elfgren. They wrote a series called, it's the, called the Engelsforsch Trilogy. The first book is Circle, the second book is Fire, and the third one is The Key. Phenomenal books. If you haven't read them, I highly, highly recommend them. A great story about a group of teenage girls in rural Sweden who discover that they are these this coven of chosen witches who have been anointed to save mankind from this approaching evil. And it's over the course of three books, they come into their powers, they start learning more about who they are, more about how they're supposed to function as a group. They are this completely disparate, they, they are all completely different people. They don't all get along, but they have to count on each other. It's, it's brilliant. But anyway, I, a lot of what they wrote about was stuff where I was like, they had a system of magic with six central elements. I loved it. I loved that. I just, I, and, and like the balance of it, I, I really loved it. So I took, I took a lot of that as sort of my inspiration and sort of I paid homage to some of that in this book because I really want more people to read it. Um, but yeah, so in terms of research, a lot of it just comes down to, especially with fantasy stuff, because so much of it is, is because there's no, there's no hard and fast rules. You get to kind of make those up. So I got to, I don't know, I got to read how other people did it. And I got to see what they, you know, how they played with these rules and what worked for me and what didn't and how I could add a twist onto that or a twist onto the twist, you know? So there's like some blending, there's some originating and there's some, some, some ping of homage in there. Uh, and it's, I don't know, it was really fun. It was just kind of neat. I also wrote a werewolf story this past year, and, and that was cool, too, because I got to read about werewolves. There's a lot of werewolf mythology out there. That was all the time we had for Caleb Rerig, and I just want to say a huge thank you to him for giving us so much great writing advice. Getting to hear how he writes characters with complexity and nuance and how he builds up tension in his books was such a privilege. It was also so interesting to hear about how he makes his characters' motivations come across clearly on the page, and how that makes the interactions between his characters more realistic. I loved hearing about how Caleb Rarick balances the romance subplots in his books along with the action in them in a way that makes both elements equally compelling. This episode is truly a masterclass in how to write an excellent mystery novel, or even just a novel in general. I will be linking Caleb Rarig's latest books, The Fell of Dark and Riverdale, The Poison Pen, below, as well as all of the books he recommended. You can find Caleb Rarig on Instagram at Caleb Rarig, on Twitter at Michaelib Rarig, and on his website, calebrarig.com, and I will link his social media down in the description box below. Feel free to follow us on Instagram, too, at keeping.tabs.podcast. You can also follow us on Spotify and leave a rating or a review of us on Apple Podcasts. Finally, I would like to thank Gavin from Tab for editing this episode. That concludes today's episode, and we will see you with another one in March. Bye!